Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I am Ark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast. I've been crewing up on sets for over 10 years. I've made dozens of films, shorts, and features as either a producer or a director, and I'm just finishing up my first feature film as a writer, director, The Alternate. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer, and sometimes casting director with two features under my belt and um, a third hanging out somewhere in the ether. Um, I am also a former film critic, a current distribution consultant, and my claim to fame is that I used to manage a department at Sundance called the Creative Distribution Initiative. Uh, This week we have senior sales manager from 1091 Pictures and filmmaker herself, uh, Sana Sony, on the show to talk about her work in distribution the distribution opportunity she saw after COVID, which she was like super excited about. And she had this whole thing that she talked about, which is great. Um, but, you know, you'll see what happened with that. And the making of her quarantine TV series, The Myth of Control, which was also very fun to hear about. Um, we're going to get right into our conversation uh, with Sana. But don't go away after that. That's what I'm trying to say. Don't go away after because we have a new short film, Melon Ruby, that's just like is going to like have hit the day that this comes out. So it's like brand spanking new um we have the writer and star julia manis on the show to talk about the film and we finally are going to read some youtube comments finally and we have a whole shit ton more than normal so yeah stick around um we are here with sana sony uh sales manager at uh 1091 uh welcome to the show thanks so much for having me Absolutely. So we're going to start with our five questions real fast. First off, give us the elevator pitch for your film, The Myth of Control. Her series, her web series. Series. Sorry. Oh, my God. (laughs) Strikes against me. (laughs) It is a seven episode uh, by 10 minutes web series, completely remotely shot, put together at the start of the pandemic, about six interconnected individuals who are also living through a pandemic. Uh, not an anthology because there is a lot of underlying uh, interconnectedness of, through it all in the story, but uh, each episode leans slightly towards more of a different genre. Um, and it is so exciting to have it out in the world soon. Uh, how many days did you shoot it? it? Took about 23 days, but considering, you know, it was like two days here, three days there, clean off the equipment, send it to somewhere else, help them set it up, <laughs> have them do it. What was the rough budget? So this, is it okay if I don't share that? Sure. <laughs> very, very low, basically. <laughs> very Under low. Under $100 million. Very south of that. Okay. <laughs> it, was, it was purely just like us, you know, just, just uh, my co-producer and I, just putting in whatever we could um and getting lots and lots of favors and we were lucky to be in a position where lots of people weren't doing anything at the start of the pandemic so they we were so excited to have so much talent and they were so happy to to be working yeah um how long did you spend working on it from the inception of the idea until its release well it's not released yet so still now yeah so ongoing (laughs) yeah i mean (laughs) on the 31st it'll have been a year i didn't realize it would take so long to see something through but I, you know, it's because I haven't done filmmaking in a long time. 
Um, you you kind of answered this already, but how big was your crew? We are now 77 people across oh, wow. 26 cities, eight countries. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are they come from all sorts of backgrounds and it, all sorts of levels, uh, which is a huge reason why we did it that way as well, because it was all about the democracy of, of having people who really knew what they were doing. They've been veterans in the business for decades and students who just come out of like film school or a different school who got to do whatever it is that they wanted to do on a, on a project. So that part is really important to us. And compared to all the other projects, uh, filmmaking projects you've made, how difficult was this one? It's so hard to compare because it was so different because it was 100% remote. So it was, it was extremely um, uh, educational because there were two of us at the top working everything out. Um, but also I have to mention that the last time I'd really done any real production had been a good eight years before that. And I hadn't been, you know, at the helm of it or producing it by any means. So it was very, very different if that answers your question. Yeah. Well, let's go back a little bit, right? So you do work in distribution right now, but you are an indie storyteller. So I guess I'm curious, um, what is your history in being an artist? So, uh, when I went from Eastern Europe to LA to go study at UCLA, I just wanted to do movies. I just wanted to be involved. So of course I got involved in every which way possible. And of course with my natural leanings would lean more towards organizing things. That's kind of who I am. So I would head up film clubs. I helped with producing. I helped gather people. That was one of my talents is finding really talented people around campus and bringing them together uh, for projects and uh, producing some grad students' thesis films, including, <laughs> I didn't produce this one, but I worked on uh, Anna Lily uh, Amirpour's uh, short film. Like, it was, it was so fun. I was just wrangling the extras. But um, the, that's kind of where I went. And then I realized, okay, I want to do more of a business side of things. I want to do the biz side of showbiz. So I started to, you know, look for work in that field and then um, continue to do that. And then uh, went to London, continue to do that more because as much as I'd love production, I realized it wasn't really for me. Uh, I hated the early mornings. <laughs> I found myself usually not being able to be of much use on set minus the, the task that I'd been assigned and it just didn't come naturally. So I was like, okay, I'll stick with the business side. Um, but decided last year, it was such a brave new world despite everything happening with, you know, pandemic it was like there's so much we can do here there's a new way we can reconfigure who gets let in to make things uh there's a new way we can configure how movies get distributed there's so much there's brave new world oh my god it's so exciting and partially out of that and my co-producer also coming to me saying what if we managed to shoot something remotely What, what if we could do this and i was like let's do it and it was like the best adventure but um I knew that there were most likely I wasn't going to continue with uh, production after that because I knew that last year had been such a unique year and even remote set, I wasn't much used. <laughs> 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 I was, I did everything like a true producer would like before we got on set or more of an executive producer would do, if that makes sense. Um. I want to hear more about what you said, this new way of distributing movies and, you know, this new frontier that we're in. Like, talk about what that is. I want to know more. 
There was so much happening. Um, I was obsessed. I had a spreadsheet of all the movies that were collapsing their theatrical windows. Um, I was in the UK. Um, so this a lot of it was UK focused, but with a big US focus as well. Um, which ones were skipping their theatrical entirely? Which ones were going to a premium VOD release? So it's $20 to rent. Which ones were going to a normal VOD and buy release, which is five, six-ish dollars like normal. Which ones are being snatched up by streamers? So this, there, I had a spreadsheet going with that. I had all this research I was doing, which was all fascinating on how this was going to affect our business. I realized, what are we going to do with the markets not happening this year or can not happening? What, what's going to happen? And I got this crazy idea into my head of, uh, and I spoke to a lot of people about it, about creating like a system, like an online market where you could attend, but I couldn't quite crack it. And to be honest, it doesn't seem like almost a year on anyone really has cracked it um, because these markets happen around a certain time, but people can still do phone calls anytime just because, you know, you don't need to have a market happening virtually to, to meet someone um, for a meeting. If you're a filmmaker or distributor or an agent that you might otherwise have done if you were attending in person, that's a completely different thing. We just can't replicate the in-person experience. So uh, but in the meantime, I learned a lot about what that could mean um, about, and I got so excited about the filmmakers that I knew who had exciting, good projects that weren't able to put them out how they would have wanted to put them out. What can we do there? How can we get them to distributors? How can I help bridge this gap? So I can't say that, you know, anything really came out of that, but I just learned tons and tons and i um, really grateful for that. And that's when you were working at a UK distribution company, right? Or is this, uh, and then uh, what brought you over to the US? It was my partner's job, um, but it was also a chance to explore, you know, stretch my abilities in terms of uh, entertainment and working in entertainment. Um, and that's definitely proved to be true um, as I'm now working at 1091 Pictures as Ulrich mentioned. And uh, that has been a wonderful experience and I've only been there just over three months. Wait, and I realize I skipped over like a more interesting question. So hold on, um, because you're, you're talking about the market and it was really surprising to me when I ended up talking to international sales agents and they're like, yeah, we used to like pitch films at these parties at Cannes and Venice and like, what do we do now? And I'm just kind of like, well, you know, those parties are like what filmmakers are about sad and resentful over like at you for so it's like very interesting to me that we had this kind of reckoning of of what a market actually is is it a party or do or do, does shit really get done and it sounds like it's both a party and where shit gets done so i'm just curious like what uh can you tell us a little bit more about your attempt to do this virtual marketplace i spoke to uh, my mentor i spoke to who I had done a program with under an association in England called Creative England. It was a great program for producers and executives um, from late 2019 to early 2020. We, uh, yeah, and we went to Berlin together uh, at EFM, the European film market in February last year. It was big hurrah, last hurrah. Um, I spoke to tons of producers. I spoke to my colleagues at Signature. I spoke to sales agents I knew. But again, I just couldn't crack it. I couldn't come up with like, a way to make one online destination compelling enough to where people would like sign up 
And this is coming from someone who's barely attended any markets, by the way, and who, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm relatively new to the world of international buying and selling movies. So this was something that I was just thinking, why not? Let's go for it. Let's just learn as much as possible. And I had, I just had lots of notes, but um, nothing, yeah, of course came of it. But what did come of it was tons and tons of uh, conversations with both people that I had known before and people that I was just meeting. And those were super useful also because I was uh, getting to the States and hustled, needed to hustle to get a job. So, <laughs> Turned into a networking opportunity for yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it grew into that more as I was like, okay, let's put that aside and like continue to just network for myself because I want a job when I get to the States. <laughs> so talk about your role at 1091. Like what do you do, you do in your day-to-day um, at your job? It's not going to be glamorous. I apologize. <laughs> it's looking at a lot, at a lot of spreadsheets. Um, I do get to, and this is one of my favorite parts of the job, is have a really good excuse to watch the movies that I'm working on, have a reason to watch trailers that we might be, for movies that we might be thinking of acquiring, Um, helping out with the artwork or title changes. That's something more that happened in my previous job Um, in order to help it bring my expertise in sales to the acquisitions team and say, well, this would work, this would this would not work. This kind of release date would work, that release date would not work, et cetera, it, you know, all kinds. But my day-to-day really consists of <laughs> lots of calls with the people that I am selling to. These are all of the AVOD clients that we mentioned, the advertising, ad-supported video-on-demand platforms. The biggest ones people might know of are obviously YouTube, uh, Pluto, Tubi, Roku Channel, and uh, just having tons of conversations with them, figuring out what is that, what it is that they're looking for, what they're focusing on. Because at 1091, we have, I believe, four and a half thousand movies. So it's quite a lot to sift through. Um, <clears throat> it's building what you call avails, which is like a list of, it can be up to a few hundred movies that you send off to these partners, these um, AVOD platforms and channels and tell them, this is what we got for you. Would you like to take it? It's curating that list to make it interesting for them. It's um, when they have selected out of those hundreds or however many titles, it's ensuring that these movies get delivered and working with our team. It's then also making sure that they're reporting on time and paying on time and and, um, tracking how that's going against budget. So that's what I mean when I say it's not really exciting or glamorous. (laughs) So interesting though. I just want to talk about distribution all the time. Um, A lot of people thought of AVOD as like this uh, great hope for distribution, right? Because transactional EST has been declining for years and years and years. Um, And then SVOD leaves a lot of filmmakers, sorry, subscription VOD leaves a lot of filmmakers on the table, like the Netflix and the Hulu. Not a lot of people can get those deals or pay TV deals or premium cable deals. But a lot of people can get to Tubi and a lot of people can get to Roku channel. Are you, do you feel like you're part of like a hopeful um, window of distribution? Yes, I am. Even though up until now, even a little bit now, it's kind of looked down upon AVOD because it's free, right? Mm -hmm. And I think up until um, even like, Last year, and unfortunately, I got to say, this is more from my UK perspective. We have a few 
a little less, uh, a fewer bunch of ABOTs out there. It, it really was movies that had had their day. Um, mm. If they're well-known, if, if, if you've heard of these movies, they've had their day on all the other windows that we mentioned. Theatrical, DVD, pay TV, SVOD. And so now the only way to really squeeze money out of it is just to put on ABOT. Or it was movies that you honestly would never have heard of as like a general person you know, of the public. You would never have heard of these movies. So I don't think it was a very glamorous or um, elite place to put your movie. Everyone wanted their movies on Netflix or, or Hulu or Amazon, but it is so changing. I think that that is changing when you see the kinds of revenues that are coming in, when you see the, the ridiculous figures of Roku growing its subscriber base, um, you know, growing year on year, beating their targets. It's like ridiculous to see. And of course, a lot of this is spurred on by the pandemic. Um, <clears throat> since a lot of people were inside, a lot of people wanted to conserve their money and not be throwing it around to subscriptions. And uh, a lot of stuff being out there. Um, one other thing is they started to learn about the, the importance of buying up rights to old nostalgic TV that is comfort viewing. Another is um, when the studios that own them, for example, Fox owns Tubi or Pluto is owned by CBS, Viacom CBS, when they learned that these AVOD platforms were really growing, they started to work with them in a more meaningful way. Hmm. If you remember a few weeks ago, it was announced that um, the new uh, CBS shows, uh, Equalizer and Clarice were going to have their pilot episodes aired both on TV normally and on Pluto, which was owned, you know, and these little kinds of pieces of synergy that show you, okay, we're, we're, we're ramping up. This is, this is really happening. And how the last bit, which I hope is like the most hopeful is that there is money there. If, if there's money there for distributors, then there's money there for filmmakers because it's going to flow down the line. So that part is one of the most exciting things because it's like a brave new world of like ways to get your movie out there and make money on it. So you're talking about like, you know, presenting 200 or so movies to um, some of these AVOD um, companies. Um, out of that- out On of those a movies, monthly how... or quarterly basis, by the way. Okay, okay. That out of those, like how many will they take? And then like, do you have any, can you give us any rough figures of like what they're paying per movie in order to have them on their services? Uh, how many they take is so up to the each platform. Uh, that is so different based on what they're looking for, um, how much capacity they have on their servers. If we happen to, to offer up titles that they were interested in to begin with, um, how much they're ramping up on acquiring new things. And secondly, um, I'm not quite sure this is how everyone works, but um, they don't necessarily, they don't pay for these. We just get a cut of the revenue. Uh -huh. So that's, that's something that you get once a movie's been up on there and it's made money off of the ads that are playing against it. And then we get a cut of that. And just to follow up on that, like, do you have any idea of like how much one movie can generate, you know, from an AVOD uh, in a, over like six months or is that data not really available? So the data is not really available for so many reasons. The market is so new. It's so, and this is something I have to contend with every day when we are looking at new, t new movies that might be coming in and we wonder how much can we make in this window and that window and this window. 
and it's something that just it's just ugh, it, it it's so it keeps changing it depends so hard so much on what the movie is it depends so much on who takes it, it in um my previous job i worked on the transactional side so <clears throat> that meant when a movie came out on home entertainment it was instantly available contractually so on all of the places where a movie is available to buy or rent google play itunes amazon microsoft you know amongst a host of others with that you had like a homogenous place you could just go to and say well this kind of movie did really well on itunes but it didn't do well on amazon so you had day one for all these movies and you had a clear path that they took um but with avod it's it's not like that it's it's uh you might have something live here you may not have it live there it um it 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 maybe we acquired it for a certain platform but <clears throat> suddenly that platform's gone out of business or they're no longer interested so it just keeps changing um but really i think the sky's the limit on what a movie could make in 6 months or a year i think it's only going to grow obviously the more well known it is the more bigger names it has in it or the more appealing the poster you'll see a lot of raunchy sexy <laughs> pieces of artwork on these because they catch the eye um for distributors who don't have huge marketing spends who don't put their movies out in theaters a lot of times you just have to rely on a very catchy title a face that people recognize in the poster or art that people can just gravitate towards and like I know what that is that looks like a horror I'm in the mood for a horror I'm going to go for that so uh it it depends us a lot at a lot of things but it's it's quite high there's there's um in the hundreds of thousands but how much of that makes its way back to the filmmaker yeah and i'm i'm talking taking like hundreds of thousands for multiple titles um i wanted to shout out to vampire dog which uh sold me with its poster one night um but <laughs> i want to get back to you know very rarely do i meet uh, storytellers who also are in distribution and in um I don't know what for-profit distribution, right? And it sounds like you have a lot of enthusiasm for the support distributors are giving filmmakers. And um, I would say a lot of filmmakers uh, resent <laughs> distributors and think that they're always lying to them or manipulating uh, the truth in some way. And it, there's there seems to be a, a blockade between distributors and filmmakers. So I've wondered if you could speak to from your point of view, does it seem like distributors are exploiting films in the best way? Not always, for sure. And I think that um, we've seen this across the community of filmmakers who is is vocal and is um, hopefully quite supportive of each other. But in many ways, you know, we have seen that they are supportive of each other and they share this information. Um, um, that said, a lot of filmmakers sadly do work in a vacuum, so they do get exploited. So no, I can't speak to everyone. I haven't, you know, obviously haven't worked with everyone or for too many distributors. But yes, I I know that there are unethical practices, cooking books, and um, and um, yeah, it's not fair to the filmmaker. Uh, but I am so glad to say that with 1091, we we've been so transparent and looking at what filmmakers say about us it seems to be quite you know it's it's definitely true that they are, they're having a good really good um good result out of working with us and 
one thing that made me so, so proud was to learn about, because, you know, again, I'm, I'm a little bit new and uh, some of these things have been happening in the background for a while since before I joined and they're just launching now is new systems in place that are going to be extremely transparent and detailed in the analytics of how your film, if it's distributed by us, is getting viewed. Um, so how many views you're getting, how many minutes people are sitting down to watch your movie on what platforms and, you know, really beautiful graphs and infographics on all of that data, which I find so exciting because it's done really to help filmmakers. It's really done to, to support them. It's done in the name of absolute honesty and transparency. And obviously it makes business sense. The more open and, and uh, helpful we are, the more movies will come our way also. So it is, that part has made me so very, very proud because having spoken to a lot of other people in distribution, I know that's not really the case. It's just like, get in, make your money, do what you gotta do, piss off the filmmaker, just, but just make your money. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately that's, it's not always going to be, you know, sunshine and rainbows. Uh, there, there's going to be a lot of negotiation, I'm sure. But once again, unfortunately, that's on the acquisition side. And I can't really comment on that because I'm not really in the acquisitions teams. So I'm, I'm really curious, like from a sales perspective, like what kind of movies are you excited to see, like come, come into your library that you get to sell? Like what kind of movies are making your job easier to, to land deals with these different subscription services? A lot of it comes down to just really obvious things. Like, like I said, oh, it's a really obvious horror movie. People want to see that. It's got vampires in it. Maybe vampires are hot right now. Or dogs that are vampires. Yeah, I, I need to know what this movie is. I mean, as it's a dog vampire lover, dog and Norm MacDonald voices a vampire dog. Oh my God, I can't wait to Google this. <laughs> uh, I'm excited when it's a movie that will inspire change. We had a one uh, just recently called A Woman's Work about NFL cheerleaders who are who are uh, not treated the way you would have thought they're being treated in the NFL. And I believe in the message of that. And when I see that these movies do well, it may, you know, it obviously reinforces your faith <laughs> in the world. Um, so things that are both meaningful and I try to keep my own interests out of it as much as possible because those are just my interests and there's millions of people out there with other interests. Both things that are meaningful, things that are quality or tell a good story, of course, things that are representative of the world around us and things that are commercial. And I realized how hard it is to kind of hit enough of these points. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, sorry, your question was? Yeah, like what? Yeah, what gets you excited and what makes it easier for you to, to, to seal a deal, to like sell, sell, you know, a block of movies or something? What, um, what makes it easier for me, it just depends so much on what the people are looking for, you know. Mm. So a certain platform does really well with a certain genre. So that's exciting. I can be like, oh, we have a whole new block of movies available that fit perfectly within that genre. So I can, mm. can send that to you. Um, but personally, as I see movies coming in that we're acquiring and putting out, it's, it's things that speak of quality. It's the, it's the things that are hard-hitting documentaries. It's, uh, it's good stories. Um, with well, Obviously, I love good cast as well. And uh, we're hopefully looking to acquire more narrative scripted films as well. And those are also very much my jam. So uh, those get me excited. 
Well, I'm glad that you didn't say cast as your very first thing, which is what I was expecting you to say, and you actually snuck it in at the very end, which was really cool. So that's that's encouraging, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 hard to um, have to highlight the things that about certain titles that I may not enjoy for the sake of a job, but that's just kind of what comes with work, right? You, if I could, I'd, I'd select only movies that I'd like to work on, but that's just not necessarily how it works. <laughs> and you finished this web series. It hasn't been released yet, but you know so much about distribution. Can you talk a little bit about how your expertise is informing your own work? Yes, I, very good question, because I, a big reason I wanted to also get involved is because I found myself being helpful to a lot of independent filmmakers. They had a lot of questions and they felt really cut off from what it is that makes their project exciting for a distributor. And I had a glimpse into what that was. So I thought, yes, definitely, this is something I can apply to my own project. Um, so I know, for example, I had seen AVODs coming up in my previous job. I knew that this was a huge opportunity. I knew that there were so many new channels, new apps, new platforms popping up and that they all needed content. I knew that I was, that we were soon gonna be in a bit of a, uh, a drought of, of new content. And I was hoping to sneak in there with our project and say, look, we got something. Um, and I knew how to be realistic to a point. I knew that for such a tiny project with such a tiny budget, with some recognizable faces, but nothing so quite, you know, quite big, uh, we had to be realistic and we knew that we weren't necessarily gonna get an MG. So I'm not looking forward to, I'm not counting on that coming in. I'm not counting on somebody paying us money. I know how the market works and I know that most likely, and we have spoken to some people about this, they will take it, they will put it up on their platform and any money that they make, they'll kind of split the shares with us. Um, so this is the kind of stuff that I thought I could bring to it. Plus uh, all the research I was doing last year about how the world was changing. That was very exciting. Uh, seeing how things like Quibi were working or not working, <laughs> which, um, which you know, it, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> it, so yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sure I have more to add here in terms of like what I could bring to it. Yeah, and I knew, I'd like to think that I had a, a good understanding of what to do with the art, what to do with the title, how to write a, or how to help shape a, synopsis that would be eye-catching or eye-catching enough um what kind of cast members to go for as opposed to others because they would help us get that sale so these kinds of things um i was so grateful to be able to bring to the project um do you feel like there is a drought of uh films from the pandemic because i had that assumption as well and a lot of people were talking about that but then you know, going, I'm, I'm submitting um, my first feature to film festivals right now. It does not seem like there's a drought. It seems like, in fact, that film, film festivals are being even more picky than they are because they have more things or they're like, oh, it's, it's a virtual thing only or we only have so many slots. So we have to really be like tough on like what we pick, like, you know, for this year. And so I just want, from your perspective, I'm curious, like, are you seeing a lack of movies or is it still just chugging along as it normally would? It really depends on what kind of business you're in. If you're Apple or Amazon, you have the money to shell out for good projects um, that might be popping at Sundance or Tribeca. You 
have the ability to plunk that down and be like, we want the rights. I think for a lot of the other distributors, it's a lot harder who don't really have that kind of money to pay up for the rights of these kinds of movies. They might be getting uh, movies that are medium or lower in terms of quality. And that's not any sort of judgment on the movies themselves. It's more of just looking at the market as a whole and seeing um, what people are willing to pay for, uh, both what distributors are willing to pay for and what viewers, once the movie is out, is are willing to pay for. So I, I have yet to really get a full understanding uh, around the business of if there really is a drought or not. Um, it certainly makes it feel like there isn't when people like Sky Movies in the UK or Netflix say, we got a new movie every week, don't worry about us. Um, but I have seen uh, certain people nervous about not having enough happening in Q3 this year. Um, if, if, uh, if all the movies that have been made towards the end of 2019, early 2020 got snatched up and have come out now, either last year or this year. And we're also a little bit worried about what consumer habits are going to be like going into the summer and out of that. If there's a vaccine, if, uh, if there's uh, uh, a bit of an opening up of the world, does that mean that people are just going to like not be at home to watch movies anymore? There's <laughs> so much to think about. And it's so hard to predict. I just wanted to weigh in from my perspective as a distribution consultant. Um, and it's that and maybe this is a very cynical perspective, but I represent what I call middle-class filmmakers. So filmmakers who like wouldn't be on like, you know, they wouldn't get like an originals deal <laughs> with Apple or Netflix and and would be usually working with smaller distributors. Um, and I just think it's never, like any opportunity never trickles down to us. And I just like to say that because I think a lot of us were like, content drought, this is our chance. And then it's like, no, 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 no. It, it, it probably, um, and it sounds like it's reinforced from what you're saying, um, it probably will impact those higher profile platforms and films because then less tentpole films are being made, less higher budget films are being made because of the moratorium. But nothing ever benefits a micro-budget filmmaker. So, and like, I do agree with what Ulrich is saying. I'm hearing that festivals, or my perspective is that festivals are being inundated with content. Well, right one now. thing I'd like to bring up is like, when you say a filmmaker, whoever they are, like, you know, you said the middle-class filmmaker who deserves to have their film seen and deserves yeah. to be paid for what they, for what they worked on, what they poured their heart and soul into. The question really is like, you know, what does success mean to them? Yeah. Um, even before the pandemic, would they have had a low shot at getting a deal with a distributor where they were able to get an upfront MG or an upfront payment? Oh, none of us ever get MGs. We would never expect that. <laughs> it, 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 or it's like, like, it's my job to tell them not to expect that, actually. Or if you like, you know, you win the lottery if you get any kind of MG, you know, it's like, it's like you basically have exceeded any kind of expectation. <laughs> This is kind of what I've seen over the last few years that this happens more and more. And I wish I understood more about the the full picture of things, you know, over how decades, how it's come along uh, to be able to, to comment on that. But it's, it's, that is so, it's sad, but it kind of shows you, it's like, it's like capitalism. It shows you supply and demand. Um, 
but it's very, very interesting to hear that like festivals are just completely filled up and they have enough stuff. I guess one thing to consider is even if they're filled up, are they filled up with the kinds of movies that a distributor would want? Uh, and if a distributor does want them, should they want them? Is this something that's going to benefit everyone? Because not, not every distributor is, is made equal. Not every deal that a filmmaker does with a distributor is equal. And uh, maybe you're better off not doing that deal or doing it with someone else. So there's a... Uh... I uh, there. I live in a world of limited choices, <laughs> and so it's all about totally what you're saying, like picking the best opportunity for you. But it's really good to know that. And I'm learning firsthand. I have a filmmaker who we're negotiating with 1091 right now, and we're actually redlining the agreement right now. And I'm learning firsthand, like how amenable y'all are, and it's really um, quite an. And I'm, by the way, renewing my film with 1091 this week because The Orchard released my film. So I'm not, this is not an overall promotional show for 1091 because I'm sure there are flaws in your system. Um, but I am seeing some some heat being drawn to that, to your company. And I and I appreciate that. In a good way. You're putting forth. <laughs> yes, good heat, momentum. <laughs> no, I, I see it too. I see it too. And um, having you mention us, obviously at the top, because of the, the number and your cheat sheet as well under Dear Producer was just like so very, very cool. Um, just getting the word out on ourselves as we rebuild the brand as well, just a little bit, because it's only been about just under two years since we broke off from the orchard to be our own thing. Um, yeah, it's very exciting. I'm, I'm so glad. I am very glad. And I'd love to hear more about this movie. <laughs> oh, red we'll talk offline. Yeah. <laughs> Arc, do, do you have another question? Go. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm just like, it just it just sounds like from what you're saying that the genre doesn't necessarily matter that much in, in your world of sales, because the, there's so many different needs from the different, you know, um, you know, companies that there's like a company that wants dramas, there's a company that wants horror, there's a company that wants sci-fi or comedy or whatever. So it doesn't feel like focusing on one genre is necessarily important for filmmakers it's more important just to make a good movie is that is that true or are there certain genres that are more lucrative than others in your mind uh it, it, it's it it kind of goes up and down which really is unfair right you all have heard about the amazon thing of not taking shorts and docs uh that makes it difficult to acquire new docs very sadly because that's you know yeah by the way you also just rejected an amazing documentary because, because oh, it's an oh, yes. oh. <laughs> Okay, tell me more about that as well. And hey, I, I get to step away from all of that and say, that's yeah, not me because I'm not in that position. This is a really good movie. But yeah, sorry, I just wanted to give you, because I felt like I was too nice to you a second ago. So now I had to give you a little ribbing, but please go on. Please do what you want. Um, it it um, Genre doesn't matter as much as like commercial viability and how good it is or how good it looks, uh, I guess, matter. And the, the interest in genres will wax and wane, depending on what it is, depending on the year, depending on the time of year. Uh, people are always in the mood for holiday, to acquire holiday movies. <laughs> Not my interest, but it's a fact. Uh, horrors obviously also do very well all the time, but it just depends so much on what a distributor has carved out a niche for for themselves. So in the last year or so, I think we've gotten really well known on our, about our docs. But um, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it'll be the same going forward. And uh, I think there's very, I think kids or family stuff 
I'm not quite sure if there just hasn't been enough out in the world for us to acquire, but there hasn't been much of that. Um, so it keeps changing, <laughs> definitely. And it's a big team, the acquisitions team. So they have a lot to work on on themselves. They're not only looking to acquire new movies, they're looking to, you know, um, keep up uh, our relationships with the people who do provide us with movies on a regular basis and provide them with the accurate reporting, provide them with uh, numbers on how their movies are doing. So it's, so it's, it's, it's a lot of work there too. So hopefully that answers your question. Can we um, do an exercise really quickly? Can we all form the most ideal film that would have a successful distribution and can it be can we give the caveat that it hasn't played Sundance or Tiff or Toronto it's just a straight to distribution non-festival film could there be a world where you can craft the perfect film without name cast and without festival prestige that you think could be a successful title you could speak of it as I know you don't want to talk about acquisitions and um, because that's a whole different kettle of fish. But for Avon, is there a world where there would be a slam dunk title that would not have cast and would not have festival prestige? Anything that really speaks to a niche. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, it seems that African-American cinema or black movies, black cinema is, is really, really, really popular. And that's, that's so good to have that kind of representation. Um, so for example, that's a quick answer, but if you wanted to build a full exercise, you know, we can, we can get into that. <laughs> I like the quick answer though. Um, anything that, 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 uh, works off of the zeitgeist. Um, if a certain thing is really popular right now, uh, obviously the Royals in the UK are really popular right now. So, uh, a lot of movies in our catalog might be doing well, you know, have to take a few days to look at the numbers when they come in, but those kinds of documentaries that we have about royals and, and princes and princesses uh, probably having a big bump. So huh. it's it's uh, it, it works off of zeitgeist a lot and a, a lot of like piggybacking off of other big marketing. Liz, do you think we should go to our final five oh, questions, yeah. or do you have a do you have a so last luxurious. big question? Usually we have to end by two, and we gave ourselves a two fifteen. So I've been like, oh, let's just be breezy. <laughs> no, I have no more questions. Sorry, final questions are fine. <laughs> Um, all right, so I'll go first. Um, what's the first film you ever made, and how do you feel about it now? It was a short film. I had gone to the New York Film Academy summer camp in London when I was 16, and it was a silent five-minute film. Uh, how I feel about it is eternally grateful because it and that week of filmmaking camp got me into movies forever. <laughs> and I... I I also loved how freeing it was to just express yourself and sit in a classroom afterwards and talk movies, not something school related. Uh, so I feel about it. <laughs> I'm sure I'd cringe a lot if I saw it now, <laughs> but, but I'm proud to have done it. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? So define what side of filmmaking. <laughs> like, Oh, what's no, I, any, any filmmaking advice from either side of filmmaking? Any advice that relates to the industry? Oh, this is one that everyone's heard and I hate to have to like repeat it. But like, if you're gonna be a full on straight up independent, do it yourself filmmaker, uh, whether that's writing, directing, producing, the answer of like, make sure there's nothing else you could be, 
nothing else you should be doing or could be doing. And if there really is nothing else you could be doing and this is it, then go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's not, it's, it's not what I like to have to say, but it, we've all seen how difficult it is. And this is a big reason why I'm not a filmmaker or independent filmmaker, you know, it, and I, I don't know if I really consider myself an artist either because I haven't done anything in a long time. Um, but eventually I'd love to executive produce, you know, down the line, not on set. I, I really, I really, this is a little off of what we normally do, but I really want to speak to what you just said. Cause I, I used to hear that a lot growing up, you know, um, coming up as a, person on sets, like talking to like people who I respected and, you know, asking for advice. And then some people would be like, oh yeah, well, you know, my advice to you is to find something else that makes more money. Or my advice to you is to, yeah, like whatever, don't be a filmmaker because it's too hard. And I'm like in my fifties and I want to quit or whatever, or like not quit. I wish I did something else or whatever the heck it is. And, um, I feel like we should be reframing that as, um, you know, filmmakers because like it's hard and it's something that you have to be really committed to. But I think if you don't, if you do it as like, like you can figure out a way to do it and, and make it happen and make it work. Right. Like Liz and I both have day jobs that we do as well as make our films, you know? And I think like setting your expectations into what it means to be an independent filmmaker, I think is probably like a better way to like structure, like to answer that question or think about that, that response, because it's like, yeah, if you, because we could all do other things. Like, you know, we could all go off and be in other industries and be making more money doing all different kinds of things. But we're here because we love to be here and it doesn't really matter, you know? Um, but like, I don't know. Well, I agree about uh, setting your expectations. But but I guess what I meant by like, there's literally nothing else you can do in the way that like, you are a filmmaker, you are a writer. And if you were doing anything else, it would almost physically hurt you. That's kind of what I mean. Like if you have so much, you have something in you, you got to get it out as a filmmaker or storyteller. I respect that because I don't personally have stories that I want to get out, maybe minus one, but we don't, you know, it's uh, being realistic is paramount. As you said, knowing that if you're going to do it, it's going to be really hard. If you're okay with that, dive right in. Right, 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 right. Sorry to, sidetrack there um <laughs> you're absolutely right <laughs> um do you have a goal as a filmmaker no i think a lot of us and you guys tell me since you are actual filmmakers you know day by day you you know uh first you got to get it done and get it out then you can kind of think of your next step sometimes you i don't necessarily don't have specific goals I just have seen movies get made and have been like, oh, I'll be a part of that. But I don't quite know uh, what that would mean exactly in terms of like what the goals would be. Other than, other than you know, get involved in stories that I really believe in. <laughs> that is the most important thing. Um, I wanted to say this before, but, I, uh, but I'll just say it now. Um, I don't like being on set either. And I just want to say, I think there is a desire, not that I, I'm always trying to convince people to direct and to like come into the world of, of, of producing and directing. Um, just want to say, uh, come to the dark side, Sana. I mean, come, come to us. Call yourself an artist and make some more content and that's all that's what i wanted to say uh but i'll get to our next question unless you wanted to respond to that 
Um, no, no, I, I, I absolutely love that. And I hated to see the little bit of regret or, or, or sadness in your face when I said that, I don't know if I'll return to making anything. <laughs> um, it, it, because, because I, I think that, you know, my, my strength lies in the business side, you know, um, and, and, but what's exciting about that is what I can take out of that and put into the art of it. Mm-hmm. That's so exciting. And it was exhilarating to, this extremely talented team we had on the web series to shape a story with them, to, to do the casting, to, to uh, come up with the creative angles of it. It was, it was beautiful, but uh, I guess I'm a wuss. Unlike yeah. the people who have d- dro- dove right in, I'm a, I don't know if I can make it work. You can, you will, that's fine, don't worry. We'll work, on, we'll work on it later, but like... that's why I'm copping out and getting a J job. <laughs> um, and also, you probably have like an apartment, you know, and like yeah, you know, life and life. you know, and things you got to pay for. I'd love that. Um, uh, considering that, if you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give yourself? Oh my God! As you can tell, I, I um, speak up and and I'm not afraid of using my voice, but I wish I'd done it more. Um, especially as a woman and a woman of color, I wish I had just had more faith in myself to say, this is what I believe. Mm. Even, even if it didn't actually amount to a lot, just speak up. I wish I had done that more Um, in everything, in the social situations, most importantly in work situations, if it comes to, to, to pay, if it comes to something you really believe, like, no, I really don't think this movie is worth our time, whatever it is. <laughs> uh, uh, just, just just to have that faith. And I am grateful for the team at Signature for drawing out that voice, <laughs> my previous job in London, um, and so that I can use it more. Um, is making movies hard? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like that expression of like having to force one into existence. <laughs> you've, you've all heard that too. Well, no, I, is it? No, I think I have. I'm like laughing because I'm thinking about childbirth. Um, what, please reframe it. Tell us what do you mean by that? Oh, uh, of like everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And it's a constant circus. Again, I am speaking about physical sets that I've been on years ago. But even even being on a short film set was scary. It was like this constant, I know lots of people thrive in that. And I'm jealous of when there's, they're putting out fires and that's when they're on, they're almost on fire. But I, I don't think it worked so well for me. <laughs> but uh, it is hard. And this is why I admire filmmakers. And when I see so many movies that get made, that, you know, they're being selected at festivals that come across our desk at work, I am in awe that people have seen it through. As you said, it feels like childbirth. Um, giving birth to a, a a entity which did not exist before and it's remarkable and beautiful and that's a big reason why i work in this business um that was wonderful thank you for being on this show how can people support you as an artist and um and how can they follow you as an individual uh, inclusive of being an artist what about the web series can they can they do something for the web series this is the hard part. Um, yes, if, if there are platforms out there that, you know, need this content, if uh, if if you, you have success with a web series and you know how, because there is no path. I'm, I'm more used to working on distribution of feature films, not on web series or TV shows. 
you know, follow us on Instagram, the myth of control. Um, we will soon as, as soon as we've hooked up with a distributor, putting, be putting more and more word out there in terms of, of where we're available to, to watch. Um, and, uh, the company that we started, my co-producer, he's already, um, gone off to do another web series and a short film. And that company is called LDNO. So <laughs> that's something to support. Um, uh, and personally for me, follow me on Twitter, I guess, LAX to LHR. Is there a trailer for the, the web series, the TV show yet, or is it, um, is it not done? It's under construction, but the, the oh. web series itself is completely ready. Well, this has been Yay. great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun. So what do you remember about talking with Sana? Um, what do I remember? I remember that, um, you know, it was one of the very few times where I got like honest, open answers from somebody in distribution. Um, you know, I feel like when I was at AFM, like people were pretty real with me there. And I felt like, you know, there wasn't a lot of bullshitting, you know, and it was sort of made clear that like what I was trying to do is <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> Raise money for a movie that's not uh, shot yet at AFM. Pretty not the norm. Anyways, but um, especially if you don't have stars and you don't have any money. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, it was good. I, I thought it was really cool to to hear about what she does and what she looks for and like what like would help her sell a movie and the way that she sells movies. It's a whole side of the industry that I'm not familiar with. But um, what about you, Liz? I just wanted, uh, you know, all I wanted to say is that I just really like her and that I'm um, just like intrigued by her. Uh, I've had a few conversations with her now and she takes notes and this is not like a Liz specific thing. She takes notes um, uh, while she's talking to someone for things to look up. She's a, like a heavy researcher. Uh, and it just makes me feel good knowing that someone who really actually genuinely seems to care about indie film and filmmakers and is a filmmaker herself is in the business. So I was just happy to know that she exists. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, we have a very exciting thing to jump to right now. And that is Get Shorty. So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. Ah, uh, so this week we have a short film from writer and actor Julia Manis, which is like not always the way it works. Like usually it's the writer-director or the director who's sending us the shorts, but this one is a star and a writer, which is fun. Um, and a producer. Oh, and a producer. Okay. Excuse me, and a producer. Shit, is she not? Oh, fuck, take that is out. Is she? Never mind. I don't know. I don't even know for sure. <laughs> they didn't advertise her as a producer. I think she was a producer, though. I think she, like, you know, raised the money on um, crowdfunding and everything. Um, she did uh, Seed and Spark. I actually listened to her responses, so I am a little bit more in the know than, than, than often I am. Um, but, yeah, but her brand-new short film, Melon Ruby, is, uh, is, get a, is on the show. She's here to talk about it, and... Before we get to her, I wanted to say it's really interesting because one of the things she talks about is like, you know, finishing this movie, being super excited to send it to short film, starting the short film process, and then boom, COVID happens. And, you know, can't do short films really or short film festivals, you know, it just doesn't really happen. And I was in a similar situation with the short I worked on. So like we had even gotten into a few and then they all got canceled, you know, when COVID happened. So it's like... You know, that movie still isn't out yet, and it's still, like, kind of doing the virtual film festival thing. But I'm, I'm really excited for 
you know, Julia to get her movie, <clears throat> you know, released and out into the world. So, anyways, enough talking. She was a producer. She Ooh. was. She's a writer, producer, and lead actress. Okay, we got it right. Um, anyways, here here is writer, producer, and lead actor of the film, Julia, to talk about it. I decided to make Mel and Ruby into a short film because, for practical reasons, that's what I had experience in. Uh, I had written a couple of short films before, and so that was really my wheelhouse. I felt very confident in telling a story in that format. And also, um, I thought that it was a subject that could be told in a short film versus a feature or web series. I was inspired to make this film because I wanted to examine the nature of shame and how it shows up in our relationships, whether that's with friends, parents and children, romantic relationships. And I wanted to provide a solution, which is we should approach people with empathy. We use Seed and Spark, which is a crowdfunding platform for independent filmmakers. And on top of that, we also had a mixer where we invited friends and family and they helped us reach our goal. And we were able to make the film that we wanted to make. So I wanted to create a Fleabag type narrative, but one that was specific to what I can do as an actor. And then I also wanted to submit to some film festivals and hopefully attend them. We had started submitting and then COVID happened. So I had to pivot. We were an official selection at a few festivals, including Sherman Oaks Film Festival. And now I'm ready to release this film to the world. I'm so excited for people to see it. So this film is a showcase of complex women. And that was one of my main intentions when I started making this film is that I wanted to show an authentic representation of a friendship between two women and all that that entails, all the great things, all the ugly things. And also I hope that people are inspired to be a little bit more empathetic in their lives. If this year taught us one thing, it's that we need some more empathy in the world. I don't think I would really change anything about the story. Uh, I'm pretty proud that it's a very authentic depiction of a friendship. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to show not only the conflict in friendships and, and what happens when we bring judgment into our relationships, but I also wanted to show that there's a way to fix it and move forward and be more supportive in the future. So yeah, I like stories that are a little bit messier in uh, the depictions of relationships because ultimately that's human and that's what we experience in our daily lives. So I chose to end the film that way because I wanted to end on an image where they're together, they're supporting each other and they're going off into the clinic together. The film starts with Mel alone and by the end of it, she's had a reconciliation with her friend where they both come to an understanding of each other. So for me, that's where the story ends. I had always intended that Mel would go through with the abortion. So by having Ruby say that I'm going to go in there with you, that's Ruby saying, I support you and I'm going to stand by you. And that's the message of my film that we should stand by each other and support each other. So Liz, what did you think of Mel and Ruby? I thought um, it showcased her as an actress, and I thought she was wonderful. I genuinely thought she was. And I know Julia. We've met a, a once. We've exchanged a few emails over the past few years. Um, I, there was a moment where I didn't really understand why she left or why she went back, but I didn't need to know, to be completely honest, because I was just like, oh, I'm a witness to a woman making a difficult decision, and I'm on board because 
it was captivating. I, my only real genuine criticism is that that location looks really repurposed. Mm. It looks like a hallway for something completely different than a reproductive health center. Mm. And um, I could be wrong. I, you know, I've been to Planned Parenthood in Los Angeles, but that's not the model for all um, centers. It just really felt like a hallway where they put a desk mm. and some chairs. Interesting. Yeah, um, so I, I'll, I'll second what you said about uh, Julia's performance. It was very, very good. And I thought, um, you know, all the performances in the short were really spot on and felt very natural, you know, and, um, you know, felt like I was just in the story. Um, I like that it was a small part of a bigger story. I feel like that's the best way to do a short, or really the only way to do a short, is to do a part of a bigger story. So that was cool. Um, I will say, like, you, you, said, you said something that, that kind of echoed this about like you didn't know why she left and why she came back like I was really confused like because I was like okay so she's gonna get an abortion and then it's like oh wait she's not gonna get it she's running away and then like since the friend was like cons- like insinuating or, or like suggesting maybe not to get the abortion when they came together at the end and they like connected I wasn't sure if it was the male character like coming like agreeing with what ruby was saying and be like oh maybe i shouldn't get the abortion or if it was oh um you know ruby coming over to mel's side and like i i don't care what i think you should do i'm here to support you as a friend which is what it's supposed to be and so i think i was a little muddled on the meaning of the ending and I asked a question about that specifically, and she gave the answer saying that, yes, I always intended for the audience to take away that she was going to go through with the abortion. And then as a viewer, I was like, oh, really? Because <laughs> like, I, I wasn't quite sure if that's what it was. Um, but I wanted to talk to you. Like, did you get that? Like, did you know that, like, oh, yeah, she's going back yes. to do it? Okay. I knew she was going back to do it, but um, I couldn't tell you why. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like... Like, cause, and that, that's like the, the, the tough part, right? Because like, she, like her friend was saying, maybe don't get it. Then she was like, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. And then she was like, oh, can I be there with you to help you? And she's like, no, I got this by myself. And then she goes in and then she goes out. So then when she goes out, you're not sure. Is she questioning what her friend said or like, why did she leave? I feel oh. like that's a good point, you know? I think that she left. Because she couldn't do it alone. Oh, wow. Basically. I think it was like just an incredibly emotional experience that was overwhelming. I don't know if it's like she couldn't do it alone. I don't think it was a moral quandary. I think it was like this is too big. That's what it felt like for me. Right, exactly. So then she leaves and then like coming back with the friend, it was like, what are they coming back to do? Are they coming back to go through with it? Or are they coming back to change the appointment? Right. Like, that was sort of my right. confusion. <laughs> but um, I think, obviously, it makes more sense. I think I, maybe it just needed to be something at the very end there where maybe Ruby would say something like, you know, like, I, like she, she was definitely there, I'm here for you or whatever. But, like, I just wanted some more clarity that she's like, yeah, you know, um, I'm here to support you, like, um, whatever decision you're going to make. I don't know. You know, or like, I, I'm, I'm not sure what it actually needed to make that more clear. It's not linear. Like, I totally agree. It's not linear and it's not clear. But like I said before, it really doesn't bother yeah. me for some reason. Because I think the core of the film is actually Julia's performance. And while the writing is charming and the direction I do think is solid, 
those aren't the things that I'm watching it for. I'm actually watching it to watch Julia. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think like, I, I wonder if I'm, if, if other people don't feel this way, if they're like, oh no, it was very clear, like that her friend was coming to her side and then just, you know, gonna, and then, you know, Mel was allowing Ruby to come in to support her because she needed that support to do this thing that she's decided to do. And then that was the ending moment. But, um, you know, I feel like, yeah, for me, it was a little unclear, but I mean, I wonder if other people find that clear, but the performances were great. I, I liked the writing. I liked showing the friendship and like the, um, like one of the things uh, Julia said is she wanted to show like the intricacies and like the layered, the layers of a female friendship. And I feel like that stuff came through really strongly because like, you know, at moments they're light and they're joking and it's very serious and it's very emotional. And it's like all these different levels to a friendship, like all in one short. So I thought that was kind of cool. A hundred percent. I just remembered one more thing and I know we're running out of time, but I'm just going to say it is that there was a moment where they're in the hallway leading up to the appointment and they get in this big fight and they get really loud. And I kept thinking, why am I not seeing the reactions of other people in the clinic mm. to their very loud interaction? And also, um, but what I did want to say, which was great, is that they planted in the script a few minutes earlier that these are kind of like boisterous friends. Mm -hmm. Like they're very loud, they're very physical. And I think that while it didn't make 100% in the edit, 100% uh, sense in the edit, it made sense in the script stage that it was their characters were planted there. Yeah. Um, so again, I really think it's a performance piece um, and well done, Julia. Yeah. Um and then I was gonna add, I did notice a couple close-ups when they got really loud of, of and really emotional people were reacting, but it wasn't like a big deal. It were they were pretty small. Oh, but man. they're but they're definitely yeah, then I just totally they're definitely it. in there. They're just not so they're not it's not a huge part of uh, of the scene. My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You got mail. So we put it off for many weeks, but we finally have some YouTube comments to read. And here's one from our episode with the Nelms brothers. Et me, <laughs> et me 1000 <laughs> says, now this is how you make a show about filmmaking. As for the brothers, the highest praise I could bring, which is indeed high praise, is that they are true artists, genuine, creative, therefore original, and thus one of the not too many fresh voices around. I thoroughly enjoyed Fat Man. Um, wow, that was very nice. I was, I'm going to say that et me was saying that our show was how to make a show about filmmaking, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, yeah, that was a compliment mm -hmm. to us. Um, do you want to read sure. uh, the comment from episode 300? Sure, we can, we'll, we'll switch off. So we have this new one from 300. It was our episode with Sev Ohanian. Um, Sev Ohanian. Because you got it right the oh, first time. Boy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is from Britt Sadie. Uh, definitely one of my favorite episodes. I listened to the podcast, but I needed to see his screen. LOL. Also, <laughs> I love your shameless self-promotion in the beginning. And I couldn't remember what the shameless self-promotion was in the beginning, but oh well. <laughs> I was just at us being us talking oh. about growing an audience probably. probably. <laughs> um, thank you, Britt. That was very kind. Uh, finally, in episode 301, we have a comment from Gary Kennedy. Thank you, Gary Kennedy. Uh, another great interview. I'd like to watch Shelter, but my Googling hasn't been able to find it, although I'm still on the hunt. As far as submitting a short of my own, because uh, editorial note, we are trying to encourage Gary Kennedy to <laughs> submit a Gary Kennedy picture. 
back to back to body. Um, I don't think I've done something that's worthy of a podcast segment yet because I too have made a short that boobs couldn't save. <laughs> um, and then is this yeah is yeah. Uh, he also adds, edit, to be fair, Cameron, uh, to be fair to Cameron, he should go to my YouTube and leave a brutally honest comment on my latest short. So call to editor Cameron Caves. Please go to Gary Kennedy's YouTube page and leave a brutally honest comment on anything that Gary Kennedy does. Yeah, I watched one of Gary's shorts. It was pretty good. And then I watched half of another one and then I didn't finish it, but I probably should. Oh, Sorry, no. Gary. <laughs> Um, we did provide the link to Shelter, FYI, and I'll also share it on Twitter. I'm overdue on sharing all our Get Shorties on Twitter, so apologies to all the shorts creators. Yeah, and then Gary responded to when I posted the link. He said, thanks, I should have thought to check your website. Yeah, duh. Uh, the short didn't really grab me, but I do give it extra points for having two child actors. That must have been a challenge. And also, great job on finding the exterior locations of the school and motel. I really would have liked to see more of the exterior of the motel. Um, and uh, a week ago, all the dead boys uh, <laughs> left a comment saying, is it cheating if I listen to the podcast but then came here to show some love and give a thumbs up? No, it's not cheating. What is that cheating? No. Is that cheating that you bring us joy, all the dead boys? Is that cheating? God, what a horrible phrase. <laughs> Um, but thank you very much <laughs> yes. for showing us love. So if you want to be like uh, Eat Me or Et at Me 1000 and write a YouTube comment, jump over to our YouTube page. Now at 210 subscribers, I must add. That's very what, good. What? Um, you can do that. Or you can show support by going on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash podcast and give what you can. Thanks in advance. We have not gotten a new Patreon in a long time, uh, but we have lots of people on there. So thank you, thank you, thank you for all the people who are on there. Um, it's paying for our editor. It's amazing. Um, if you want, you can send a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. I don't know. You check every day, Liz. Have we gotten a new iTunes review? No. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. I check every day thinking maybe, maybe this time. That's, That's funny. Right. And then finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Yeah. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to Sanasoni for making this episode happen. As far as us, you can find me on Twitter at Liz Manischel. You can find me on Instagram at Liz Manischel Film. Ulrich, where can people find you? Uh, Ulrich B on the Twitter and Instagram um, and on Facebook just as Ulrich Purcell. I am there very seldom, but I will be there again. <laughs> yeah, you will. You're coming back. Um, Check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find the links to the things we talked about in this episode. Thanks to Cameron Caves for doing the editing, question mark. Hopefully Cameron's going to pull through. I wanted to add, because I heard another podcast did this, thank you to Lucas Colshaw again and again for the arts. And maybe we can try to thank you in the credits, just so everyone knows of your wondrousness. Um, anyway, thanks to everyone for listening and talk to all y'all next week. You can find me on as I wipe away this flea that's in front of me. All the YouTube viewers, so excited. You can see this too. Okay. Um, you can see me. You can find me at YouTube. No, fuck. Okay.